This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Times best-selling and award-winning author of Kick-Ass International Thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And Taylor, I want to know how your uh, budding book-selling, book distribution <laughs> business is going. I'm not exactly sure where things are. I know we, we talked a couple weeks ago about, about you getting the hard copy version of The Vessel, but I know something's happening there, so tell us what's happening. Okay, just to be clear, I am not going into the book selling business. This is like a one and done thing, right? And it's special for this particular hardback book. Um, and so the the whole idea in my head of how to do this seems so much simpler than actually it's turned out <laughs> to doing it. And it's not the, you know, packaging books, autographing, putting, slapping, you know, postage on them. That's not such a big deal. But it's the how do you collect payment for it. And I, you know, the more I started thinking about it, I was like, okay, well, what about sales tax? Like sales tax is an issue, right? And I'm not a business. I'm not set up to be a business booksellers, bookstores, and, you know, they sell books. I just write them. I do not sell my own books. Um, and so um, I, I was like, first of all, I had this big uh, moment with myself. I can't remember if we talked about this already or not. So just stop me if I'm repeating myself, but it had to do with pricing, pricing this book. Like how do I price this book? Because book pricing in the publishing industry is one of the big reasons why there's no room in the industry for people, for authors like me anymore. And Steve, you and I have had this discussion before about how a book is a book is a book. Like whether it doesn't matter what's between the covers, a hardcover is still going to run you, you know, between $24 and $28, depending on how thick it is, more or less, which has nothing to do with the quality of what's inside and just has to do with the extra materials and production costs of making a thicker book. So when somebody goes into a bookstore to buy a book, they're technically buying the content, but they're paying for the paper. And, and the production value and the all the ex company expenses that went into getting it. So you you don't, it, there could be a really, really fantastic author who's very, just, just writes amazing stories and you're going to pay the exact same price for their book as you are going to be for somebody who phoned it in or who's just, you know, rushing stuff out, you know, on a really quick contract, which is not to slam that, you know, it's just that's to slam the rushed book or to say that just because somebody spends more time working on their book that it means it's more valuable. No, it's all relative. Um, but in, in this particular model, the idea is that, well, if all books are priced the same, then naturally the better quality books are going to sell more copies because who in their right mind when faced with paying the same amount for a not so great book and a really great book is going to buy the not so great book. So in theory, this whole same, same pricing model is, um, 
it, it works. But in practicality, it totally doesn't because that's not it's not a level playing field. That's just the book industry is a very closed market. Um, there are very there are select few players who decide what actually gets in front of readers. Um, if if a really great book is not in front of readers, they're not going to buy it because they don't know it exists. And it it's a little more complex than that, but but that's how it goes. And then you you compound that with the way that ebooks are now driving the genre market, and ebooks have the the perceived value of ebooks has been driven so low that the vast majority of ebook buyers aren't even going to pay full price for a book. Like it's just expected that eventually everything's going to be discounted. So you just wait till it gets discounted. So you, for an, an author has to sell that many more copies just to keep treading water. And it's, it's created this very stratified environment in the publishing market where those who rise, rise, and everybody else just kind of sinks and fights over whatever scraps are remaining. So because of this pricing model, amongst many other things, but the pricing model is, is one of it, it's like, I can't afford to, I can't make a living. I can't afford to write really good books and expect that my sales numbers are going to be enough to support me because I just don't have that kind of visibility anymore in, in today's market. So here I am with my own special edition, which is essentially a collector's item that I'm putting out. And how do I price this thing? Because to go back and um, just slap a, a same, same price on it like everybody else is basically buying right back into the same thing that I turned my back on to begin with. Like, I can't, I just couldn't, I can't in good conscience. And then, well, like, if you ask me how much it's worth, well, I'm heavily biased in that regard. And I'm like, okay, well, all this time and all this effort and blah, blah, blah. Okay. 500 bucks a copy. That sounds about right. You know, but at that point, that's just, it's just a reverse of the same problem. And then on top of it, I've now cut off access to this desired thing to 99% of the readers who would like to have one. So that's not an option either. So what I ended up doing instead was pricing it as um, pay what you want. Um, pay what you want, pay what you think it's worth, pay what you can. And I had, you know, I set a price floor, which is the production cost. So the exact cost that it cost me to print it, ship it to you, and any fees or whatever that the whatever method we use is going to charge, that's the base of the floor, price floor. And anything above that that you want to contribute to me to keep me writing, that's up to you. Do it if you want. Don't do it if you want. I know that some people who are doing this, just they have even the price floor is is a stretch for them. You know, they're just fighting to keep a roof over their heads. I do not want people to put themselves out um, and hurt themselves for this to get it. Um, but every extra contribution from those who can is just going to help pay my bills and keep me going that much longer. So that's what I did. And then um, and then I was like, OK, well, that's fine. I, I can explain all that. How do I collect payments? Because I went and researched it. And in the state of Texas, which is where I am, any Internet sales that are sent out of state, I don't have to collect sales tax on them for the state of Texas. Um, Every state has their own laws. That's not my problem. I'm not going to deal with that. I don't have to worry about it, you know, because um, I'm not a, I don't do this in volume. If I did it in volume, I would probably and regularly I might get a little more worried about it. But Texas, I live here and I don't don't, don't want to get in trouble. So it's like, OK, for everybody who's out of state, that's simple. <laughs> you know, I can I can let them pay however they want. I can take credit cards through invoicing through the square, which is that little chip that you put you know, you see people put it in their phone and then use it to swipe um, or, you know, Venmo or whatever. That's easy. Um, 
Texas people, I had to kind of get creative. And, and what I ended up doing was going through Patreon. I looked at eBay. I looked at Patreon. Both of those platforms collect sales tax um, and take care of it for you. Um, but with Patreon, they there's a way that you can set the price of whatever the tier or the pledge is, and then um, anything above it, you you tell it how much of that has actual tangible value, and if anything above that, they're not going to collect sales tax on. And so it it lets you do that, and then they um, they uh, they take care of it, and you can change the amount if you want to, and the fees are lower than eBay, and it's just an easier, more versatile system. And the downside is they are going to look at it as a monthly pledge, so there's this extra little step you have to do to go in and cancel your pledge at the end so that they don't keep billing you monthly. But that, that actually turned out to be a really com complicated to explain but workable solution. So the emails went out to everybody who said they wanted a book. Lots of replies had come in, and I have been very busy linking addresses and autograph requests to books and getting them in envelopes, and hopefully by the end of the week I will have them all out of my house. And now you'll have people listening to this who didn't think to send you an email before, and they'll start sending you emails. Oh, no, you guys had your chance. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. I still have yet to hear from a number of people who said that they wanted it. I've got 38 copies left. That's it. So once those are gone, I'll have to put in a new order, and I'm going to be – I'm not going to put in a big order because I don't want to be left – you know, out of pocket for an enormous amount of books that are just going to sit in my closet. So if you do want one, speak now. <laughs> Get in on this. And then after that, I, I'm done. I'm, I just, I can't, I don't have the mental energy to do this for the long term. It's sort of a one deal thing. So I'm going to right now just put out there anything that's in by the end of February. Great. After that, time's up. But, you know, one thing I did do on to, to make this happen through Patreon, I realized I had to set up a separate Patreon account, which is not against any rules or anything. Patreon's all about it. And, and because it's the type of billing where as soon as somebody puts in the credit card, it charges them then, and it doesn't wait until the end of the month, uh, to the first of the next month to do it. So it's called, you know, instant billing or whatever. Um, and so I had to do something like that for the book. So I was like, well, while I'm here anyway, I might as well list some of my older books that you just can't get in bookstores anymore because, you know, it's been so long, the hardbacks that I still have. So I put a couple listings up there as well that, and from now when people are like, how do I get copies of your book? I'm just like, here's a link. And I don't have to worry about it anymore. Good thinking. I like this. Good idea. So, yeah, that's what I've been up to. Well, we were talking about, uh, Several things there. You know, Taylor, Taylor had the idea that we're going, I'm going to distribute these books, and that, that brought together lots of other things. And so today's topic, we're actually going to be bringing together a couple of things. We, we've talked in the past uh, about the need for every scene having a purpose, and we're going to combine that with knowing your audience in today's discussion. So Taylor Stevens, take it away. <laughs> well, thank you. Okay, so this is a little bit, um, it's not a super cut and dry subject. And I'm going to do something with this one that I almost never do, which is take a book that somebody else wrote and sort of analyze it for where I feel it felt sh fell short. 
And the reason that I feel quasi comfortable doing this is because the person who wrote this book is no longer with us. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, I'm not All right, now I feel terrible for, for laughing about this. <laughs> well, okay, here's the story of this book, okay? Um, I'm, a, I'm a Prime member, even though I really am not a fan of Amazon at all for so many reasons. Because I live rather rural, sometimes is the only way to reliably get things for an affordable price. And so I will use it if I have to. But it also allows me to stream movies and get books and so as part of the Prime membership, you can do what's called Prime Reading, which is it's not KDP, um, which is like you pay a fee and you can have unlimited rentals for all the books that are in that market. It is something separate where Amazon just makes these books available for free for you to borrow. And there's no limit. You can, I think you can borrow up to 15 books at a time. And there's no real limit on returning them. It's just once you've maxed out your 15, you can't get another one until you return one or something like that. So I have not had a chance to read many books at all over the last few years. Um, I just haven't had it in me. And reading is just not enjoyable for the most part. And I don't have time. And so with this new year, I made it a goal to read at least a book a month. And because of all the everything that's going on in the world and the everything that's going on in my life, I realized that for reading fiction, it's going to have to be light. It can't be thrillers or, um, you know, heart tugging stories. It just has to be brain candy. So that's where my thoughts were when I started looking for things that I could download and read, just easy reading. And there, um, the other thing that I'm up against is I, it has to be good writing. I, ju I just can't. I can't make myself read it unless it has a attained a certain amount of quality in the, in the craft. It, it makes my brain bleed otherwise. And, um, and that's just me. That's my problem. That is not to speak badly about any other authors. And so to find that mix is a little bit of a challenge, something that's really quality writing, but light reading and also in this very limited library. And I saw this book that got really great review, like really high rating, a lot of reviews on it. I don't know, in the 4,000s or 5,000s and um, definitely over four stars all the way through. So I was like, okay, fine, let me see what this is. And I clicked on it, and there's a foreword in it. And it's by the daughter of the woman who wrote the book. And it basically explains a story that says that of who her mother was and that the one thing her mother wanted in life more than anything else was to be a writer. And that she had labored over this book um, but couldn't find a publisher for it. And she fell ill and was dying. And so um, it, because she'd not had it published any other way, she went ahead and just self-published it. And she received her copy, like a physical copy of her book, either like the day before she died or the day she died, something like that. So she got to see her dream come true. But then posthumously, I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, 
um, there was a publisher who, I guess in all the submissions that she had sent out in advance, um, read it and decided they wanted to publish it. So in the end, after the woman passed away, the book got published. And that's what was being made available. So I first I read that, and then I read the opening lines of the story, and I was all in. I was like, this book is great. The writing is so strong. There is no doubt whatsoever that this woman understood craft. The writing is crisp. It is witty. It is light, but clean and just really solid craft straight way through. And the opening chapters just pulled me right in. And I'm like, this is awesome. I couldn't understand how this book didn't find a publisher. And then a few more chapters in, I sort of started to understand why it didn't find a publisher. And by the time I got to an end, I was like, this really is sad. Because this woman was a really strong writer. But I had a really hard time slogging through to the end of the book, in spite of the great writing. And it was all storytelling issues, all of it. And I could I could totally understand why trying to submit that to I, I can almost predict the experience of submitting that to agents based on the partial like the the first few chapters. She would have gotten so many requests for fulls. And then the declines would have started coming in. You're a strong writer. The story has a great um, setup. But this just isn't the right book for me. Over and over and over. And I felt like that's probably not an isolated experience with a lot of really strong writers who get turned down and can't find a publisher, it's not the writing, it's the storytelling. And now I'm going to explain to you um, what the story is. And this is full spoilers. If you are looking to read this book for entertainment or enjoyment, you're either going to have to stop listening to this now and come back to it after you've read the book or read it for education. So the title of the book is called The Betty Davis Club. And if you Google it right now or on Amazon, you can see how many fantastic rave reviews it has gotten. Like people truly love this book, at least the ones that are rating it. And that is what takes us to our kind of side point or the, the mixing of topics in that you also really have to know your audience when you're writing because clearly this audience loves the book and is not seeing what I saw. But the publishing, if you, the publishing industry, the professionals did see it. And that's why it never found its own publisher until way, 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 way down the line. So the, the story starts with um, a 50-something-year-old woman going to her niece's wedding and her niece and her, the niece is the daughter of her half sister. And the, that side of the family is just ridiculously, insanely wealthy. 
And even though the main character is also the daughter of the father who passed down all this wealth, I guess you'd be the, the patriarch in this sense, she was the illegitimate daughter. She was the daughter of the mistress. And um, the mistress had died, and that's how she got integrated into the family. But then her father died, and she got sent away to boarding school. So she's really not had a lot of interaction with her limited family for what they are. And she's older now. She's in her 50s. So, you know, she's, she's not married. She's had some relationships. And she's, I guess you could say, an alcoholic. But it is not portrayed in any sort of depressing or, um, like, misery sort of way. It's it's the voice. The voice of the character is funny and sarcastic, and so she attends this wedding because she's broke, <laughs> and it's like, hey, free vacation, and because whatever issues she has with her family, she's always liked her niece. So when she gets there. Uh, the niece has has run off. She's jilted and left her groom at the altar, which, as it turns out, is something that this character has also done in the past. And so the the half sister basically comes in begging her to go after the niece, retrieve this ridiculously expensive wedding dress. It's worth like fifty thousand dollars or something, and also something that the niece has taken that is of value to her that she wants back, but she won't tell the main character what that thing is, just that she'll know when she sees it. So she bribes her kind of with, I think it's like $50,000. If you do this, I'll pay you $50,000. And the reason she picks her is because my niece will listen, the, the daughter will listen to her when she won't, she's not on speaking terms with the mother and that she's family and blah, blah, blah. Um, part of the setup is the main character does not, is terrified of flying. And so this means all the driving, all the traveling is going to be by road, which sets up for a road trip. So it becomes a road trip story. And then on top of it, the main character has the jilted uh, groom-to-be accompany the main character. So the, the, the sister, stepsister has the groom-to-be accompany the main character on this drive because the main character conveniently lives in New York and doesn't have a driver's license or hasn't had one for a very long time. So thus begins the story, this adventure, where they are off to track down the wayward runaway bride, secure the things that belong to the rich stepsister, the rich half-sister, and be done. And it's a road trip that initially starts off to Palm Springs, I think it was. That is a fantastic beginning. And the, co- the conflict between the main character and the groom-to-be is a great setup because the niece is like 19 years old, and the groom is in his 40s. So immediately you're like, you're like what the, <laughs> what kind of a marriage was this? But it's Hollywood and, you know, whatever. So until they get 
to when they get to Palm Springs, there's a few events that happen that um, the main character realizes that the niece would have pawned off the wedding gown and they're able to figure out where that is. And now they know that the niece has money and she could be anywhere. And in the hotel, there's like big conventions going on for golfing. And then there's a big golf tournament going on. And then also something else that's like a, 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 the gay mecca of the world. All the, all the, the gay people come to Palm Springs for this thing. And I forget what it was. So it's all converging at the same time. And because of people that she meets in the bar, the bartender, whatever, they, she starts to get clues of where the niece might be, how to locate her. And at that point, it all just slows, just like this slow slide downhill. Like up until that point, it's great. It, it's, it's tight. It works. The dialogue is snappy. Um, the, the story is tight. And then it just sort of slows slide downhill. And it starts there because we end up with this huge chunk. I was reading it in ebook version, so I, I can't say exactly how big related to the entire story. But it's this huge chunk where the main character agrees to be a dance partner for one of the other characters that she's encountered in order to get access to a room key that would allow her into the room that the niece is staying in and, and hopefully just walk in and confront her, whatever. So there's so much setup to getting that key that has nothing to do with the story. And that's where the Chekhov's gun principle comes into play. And Chekhov's gun is, we've talked about that before, where you set, if you set a gun on the mantle in chapter one, that gun better go off in chapter two or chapter three. You can't just put something into the story and then do nothing about it. it, does, it. So that's exactly what happens in this, in this huge chunk of the story is that so much time and words get put into her finding a dress and all her concerns about being able to dance properly and analyzing all the everything that's going on in the hotel and the guests and explaining all this stuff and a lot of effort into bringing these side characters to life. But once that scene, that, that section closes, we never encounter those characters again. So it, it's like you, you keep waiting. You keep waiting for something to happen. And then on top of that, it keeps dragging out. The choices that the character makes are just like, oh, I'll do that tomorrow, or I'll do that tomorrow. And it works for the plot, but it leaves you with this sense of, there's no urgency. Why are you letting this slip through your fingers? So by the time they finally do find out what they need to find out about the niece, the niece is gone. And now they got to go on an another part of the road trip that takes them somewhere else. So it just becomes this very episodic sort of from here to there that's loosely tied together with this hunt for the niece. And then they're just like, 
screw it, I don't care anymore. I'm not going to find, I'm not going to do this. And then the niece comes and shows up on her doorstep. And it's just like, there, it, it, it doesn't, the story doesn't know what it wants to be. It doesn't know what it, it how to hold itself together. There's no, the, the, the niece is the, the supposed thread through it all. And the thing that she took from the rich mother is supposedly the thing they're chasing after. But the focus keeps changing throughout the story. And it tries to tie ideas together. Like the, the fact that this main character had left her, hus- her husband-to-be at the altar is very similar to what the niece has done, except that in the main character's case, her husband-to-be was gay. And her best friend at the time kept trying to tell her, kept trying to tell her, and she didn't want to admit it until she finally realized while she was getting ready to be married that this was not going to be a happy marriage no matter how much she liked this guy. So that that theme of a, a woman marrying a gay man is what drives the title of the story. They call it the Betty Davis Club, and it's based on um, the movies that Betty Davis played in, in which she was always chasing men that were not available or unattainable. And so that does pop up throughout the story. And I guess maybe the scene that takes place, that huge, massive scene in Palm Springs, um, which focuses so much on um, these lesbian women that it's supposed to maybe somehow tie into that, I, I honestly don't know. I just know that the writing, as strong as it was, couldn't save the story for me. But there is an audience that clearly didn't care. They, they liked the episodic nature of it, or they didn't realize the episodic nature of it. And they maybe didn't... To, what I'm doing right now is going too deep for them. Like They just wanted the, the brain candy, and they didn't really care that the rest of it worked or didn't work. But the fact that the story itself just completely lost its way, all of it was fixable. There's nothing that was in that story that couldn't have turned it into just like because of the strength of the writing and that woman, the writer's voice was spectacular. If that story had had the opportunity to have a story doctor look at it and say, all right, here's why it's not working. Let's pick one or two things that you want to keep repeating through the story and get rid of all the rest of them. Let's not try and make the story into something that it's not and cut off that third and and rewrite something else that works and let's not make it episodic. Let's tie these things together. That that story would have just that book would have it would have probably been a bestseller because it it is the, the writing, the voice. It's just it's brilliant. But the story itself lost its way. So um, I think like if you're looking for an example of of how, as an author, it's e- it's so easy to get lost in the weeds and to to think that you're crafting crafting something that works and and totally miss how it doesn't. That's a really good example of a book that does that. Um, 
And and maybe you'll read it and and think that I don't know, you know, I'm crazy. This book is perfect and it's fine. And that's okay because that means that you're the audience for it. And clearly I wasn't the audience for it. But when I think of, you know, talking about how every scene needs to have a purpose to the story, and then I hit this book and it's like that wasn't a scene that had no purpose. That was like <laughs> <laughs> a sixth of the book that had no purpose. Like it, it, what, what the, the purpose was to be able to get the key card and that's fine. You, that could have been done in three pages instead of 30 or 40 pages. So like I said, <laughs> this is kind of just a combination of topics. Um, every scene needs to have a purpose. Story matters just as much, if not more than writing. And sometimes tying together a story can be as hard, like tying together the elements of the story and make keeping them tight can be as hard as, as writing the story. And sometimes it's really easy to lose your way. But as I read, as I got to the end of it, what it really felt like to me is that the author had a bunch of things that they wanted to write about and kind of had a vague idea of a character, a vague idea of a story uh, plot that could have could use they could use to tie it all together, and they weren't so much writing a story as writing little vignettes about things that they wanted to talk about, and just sort of loosely wove them into the idea of a story. Um, and and that's not that doesn't work in terms of writing something that that just smacks and just hits, you know, uh, you will find an audience for it if you're a really strong writer, but not the kind of audience you would find if it just hit on all cylinders. And so that's my, that's my analysis of, <laughs> of the Billy Davis Club. And I wouldn't, I would never in a million years leave a poor review for it. Um, I think it, it deserves good, good stars just for the writing and the wit alone, but the story there, there really wasn't a story. So. so let's talk about the uh, the know your audience bit, because yeah. that's that's an important part of this. I There are lots of things that I read that are like this. I haven't read this, although I did. I did just get a copy so that I can uh, at least go through it um, for homework, as you said, because this is not is not my, my typical cup of right. tea. But but there are I don't know, I, I'm going to guess four or five authors whose whose books I read just because I like the characters and they're totally episodic. It's, it's, there's, there's kind of a story there. There's a beginning and there's an end. And then there's a bunch of stuff that happens in the middle. Um, Stuart Woods, the Stone Barrington series is something like that, where every book is essentially the same. It, it starts uh, at a restaurant. It ends with catching the killer and in the middle, they go to Bar Harbor, they go to Paris, they go to London, they go to Key West, they go to one other place, they visit all these restaurants, every so often someone tries to kill them, and that's the book. And it's the same book time after time after time after time. Literally the same them. book. But I enjoy the characters. And <laughs> so it's like, I get the books, I listen to the books. I, I, I like Tony Robbins as the narrator for this, and he's, he's brilliant. But... He makes the stories engaging enough that I can keep going. And sometimes I'll get halfway through it. And this happens all the time where I'll start one of these audiobooks and I might not finish it for six months. 
um, because there will be something that I would rather read or, or rather listen to. But when I don't have anything else, I want to get back to these characters. So I, th- I do think there is a market for this kind of thing. And, and just looking at the number of people, as you pointed out, that reviewed this and reviewed it glowingly, the overall yeah. star rating is, is 4.3. And if you just scroll through the reviews, it's interesting. It's like, loved it, loved it, loved it. There are a lot of loved it because of the forwards. I think a lot of people got pulled in because of the forward. And then every 10 or 15, there's, oh my gosh, this is, this is, and, and then it's, it's like someone explaining what you just explained. And so for people who are looking for a certain quality of writing, this doesn't even begin to hit the mark, but for people... Quality of storytelling, because the writing is fantastic. Okay, yes, thank you for clarifying that. Um, But the, the, for people who just... In the first couple of chapters, it's like, hey, I like this lady. She's 50 years old. I'm 50 years old. There aren't very many stories about 50-year-old women. I want to keep reading this. And so uh, there's that. And I I think there is a market for that. But all of your points are valid, including the know your market point. And and I think it's also important to understand that um, my way of looking at story is... A completely separate universe from how the average reader looks at story, because this is what I do. I do this for a living. I do it day in and day out. I, I, I'm the equivalent of, you know, an, a, a policy wonk trying to decipher <laughs> some obscure aspect of economics and the impact that's going to have on this specific section of the market. When it comes, most people are just like, can I pay my bills? No, this sucks, right? <laughs> and so, and so, you know, the policy wonk might really know what they're talking about, but it's not helpful in, you know, the vast majority of practical. You're not going to want them over at a dinner party. Um, so you kind of have to understand that the way I approach writing and storytelling is a little bit like I, I can't separate my um, knowledge and understanding from my reading experience. So I will find things or be annoyed by things just because I I, I can see it in a way that most people will will be perfectly fine with. So that is just something to keep in mind. And in that vein, if we have just a small, I know we're probably getting really close to running up against the upper limits of our time here, but I want to this, this ties into the whole know your audience aspect and storytelling and how there are specific people who look for that type of storytelling. And it's going to get me so much hate mail. So here we go. <laughs> I did not enjoy The Mandalorian. <laughs> and people, I, I just I can I can feel it coming. Um, and, and that's not to say that it wasn't well done. Um, I've, I've watched both seasons of it. And the first season, I, I I liked it a little bit more. Um, the second season, I just got I got bored. I got so bored. Now, clearly, I am not the audience for that show because it is getting praise to the high heavens from Star Wars fans, and the Star Wars fans that I know have really, really enjoyed it. So we already know that it's good. We already know that it's brilliant. We already know all these fantastic things about it. And now I'm going to tell you why it didn't work for me. 
and why I am not the audience for that show. Now, first of all, it was episodic, right? Which was a deliberate choice. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't, uh, hey, I don't know how to tell a story. It was a deliberate choice. And episodic things for TVs is acceptable, right? Like it's not really acceptable in book form unless you're writing a series, but in, in TV, that's done. It, it, like there are so many shows that are done as episodes where each one sort of, you know, wraps up and closes out. And then you do the same thing again, the next one, like, you know, detective shows where every, um, every episode they solve a case and then they move on. And I find that personally, I tire of them very easily. And the reason why I didn't enjoy The Mandalorian is the same reason that I tire of episodic shows is it's very repetitive. It's the same thing over and over and over again. And unless you absolutely love that thing and you want something that opens, gets to the end and is done and you move on to the next one, with a um, sort of a continuing story that runs throughout, um, unless that's what you enjoy, it's just not going to be for you. There are a few shows I've seen bits and pieces of that I, I that are episodic and I enjoy. House is one of them, um, and that's because I, I'm fascinated by the the medical stuff that that comes along with it. So there's something in it that I like all the clues being dropped, and I'm I don't really watch. I've never watched any like Law and Order or anything like that, but I'm guessing that those who really enjoy those shows are also finding aspects of you know solving cases, figuring it out, very enjoyable in small bite-sized chunks, and then you know there are larger story pieces that continue episode to episode, right? So this is a very very acceptable form of uh, television, and in The Mandalorian, it's filmed sort of spaghetti western style. And why The Mandalorian didn't work for me is because every episode to me felt like you go to a new place, you meet some people, you have a big fight. When you get to the end, they give you a clue of where to go to the next place. You go to the next place, you meet some people, you get in a big fight. By the time you get to the end, you meet some other people who give you a clue of go to the next place. And it's just this over and over and over the same thing. And if I really enjoyed all these action sequences and the fighting and all of that, it would have been fantastic. But they bore me. The the fight sequences bore me because there's no character. It's pew, pew, pew. It's just the same thing over and over in a different scene, different setting, different fighting, whatever. But it's still pew, pew, pew. And then, you know, the Mandalorian's going to be okay. So there's no, no, no tension there. I mean, the most stressed out I got, spoiler alert, in these entire episodes is when, spoiler alert, again, Baby Yoda ate frog eggs. That made mm. me so angry. It was not funny. And it was, I just got up and I left. I was like, this is not okay. <laughs> and, I, and I had, I, I couldn't even, I, I didn't even watch that whole thing. I was like, call me when her eggs are safe and he's not eating them anymore. Um, but, but in terms of the actual, uh, st- the episodic form of storytelling, because I did not enjoy the the limited character development and the focus on the fighting, um, the, the fight scenes or whatever, it just it just I was just I just got bored. It wasn't like it was bad to me. It's just like yeah, there's more. 
interesting things to do um, while this is on TV. I'm not I'm not going to sit here for this. So. But at the same time, <laughs> for those who enjoyed that it is amazing for those who enjoyed the way for those who are just like total Star Wars geeks um, who love all the Easter eggs that get thrown in and, and the the callbacks to other um, Starbucks, his, uh, Star Wars history and everything. It's brilliant. It's brilliantly done. But for me, no, because I'm not the audience for that particular thing, because I do not enjoy, for the most part, episodic uh, storytelling, particularly when each episode is primarily set up to a big fight and then you're done. So that's my take on it. You're right. People do love that series. And I, because I work with a lot of science fiction writers, I hear people talking about it all the time. And um, it's, it's always in glowing terms. I'm impressed that you made it all the way through uh, both seasons. Oh, because you, you are not so much a fan of that form of storytelling either, I'm going to guess. I watched the first episode and then stopped watching. And then I just, people just kept saying, it is so good. You've got to you've got to go back. And I, I think it was the second episode where baby Yoda shows up and I'm like, Oh, okay. I, I finally understand something that's happening. So then I watched the third episode and I'm like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> no, but I, I was the same that. way with star Wars. I've, I've only seen when the, when the first three came out, I only saw the first one and I never went back to see any more. And I haven't seen any since then, except when a group of friends will say, Hey, you have to come with us. And, and, you know, we're all going together to see the movie. It's like, okay, fine. I'll, I'll go. But that's the only time. And then I have to sit there and, and say, what's happening? Who is that guy? Why is this happening? <laughs> and I think I'm, also, I'm awful. I think also like the audience for that show, um, there is something about star Wars that is generational. Like the generation, when, when it came out originally, the first one, it was no nobody ever seen anything like that? That before. was my generation. <laughs> that was like I was I was like eighteen years old when that came out. Okay, well I was six. <laughs> so let's go that people who were ten and twelve at that point, right? Yeah. So, but um, I mean, everybody and, that I knew went to that and loved it and went over and over and over again to see it. And I went once and was like, was okay, that was that's it, different. I've never seen anything like that before. It was so it it changed cinematography and it was something that had never been done before it was so unique and original and so if you were someone who at that time um was moved by this that it just pulled you in then you already carry that you carry that overwhelming sense of amazement and you are you are into it in the same way that readers who read Vanessa Michael Monroe and are into those characters and are into her story and and want to follow her and want to follow all the they would read spinoffs. They would read uh, prequels. They would read fanfic because they're so into that story. That is Star Wars, but a billion times bigger. Right. So for those who 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 carry that in them. It doesn't matter what you throw at them. They're going to enjoy it just at different levels. And and The Mandalorian just hits it on all levels for those who are already fully vested in these stories. So I totally get that. And I am not dragging The Mandalorian. I'm not dragging the storytelling. I'm not dragging the directing, the cinematography. It's all great. I'm just not that audience. And the specific reasons why are the episodic nature of it and the repetitiveness of it and the fights, which just bore me. So 
know your audience. They were not writing those for me. <laughs> they were writing them for hardcore Star Wars fans. Um, when you are writing your work, write for your audience. Write knowing who's going to be reading it and what they're looking for and give them what they want. And don't worry about the people who don't dig it because they're not your audience. And with that, we are out of time. So <laughs> thank you, Taylor. That was a, uh, was a fun episode. And uh, you know, we, we wrapped all the way from Betty Davis to Star Wars. So we, we covered multiple generations, even though we didn't actually talk about Betty Davis. And uh, we will be back in your ear again next Tuesday. Yes, for those who are still with us, because after that, I'm sure some people really hate me. Don't hate me, guys. Don't hate. Don't shoot the messenger. All right. See you guys next week.